This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe, and if you'd like to, give us a rating and a review. Now, this week we're casting off for an episode all about the history of piracy, and more specifically, the pirates of the English Channel. And while this might sound like an unlikely title for a film, history tells us that the waters between southern England and northern France were, in fact, a dangerous domain for cargo vessels for several centuries. Piracy, that is, the act of stealing goods from ships, was ruthless, violent and murderous, but in many cases it was sanctioned by the state. In these instances, the perpetrators weren't necessarily called pirates, but instead more civilised and heroic names, like privateers and buccaneers. Well, joining me to map out the history of piracy in English waters and discuss its key figures is senior properties historian Paul Patterson. Hello, Charles. Good to be back. And what a great subject to be talking about. Absolutely. And of course, most people tend to associate piracy with the Caribbean. But is this correct or just an idea that we've been sold over time? I think it's an idea we've been sold over time because actually piracy was universal and actually it still exists today. But we have this thing called the golden age of piracy, which was conjured up by historians, really, to reflect a particularly intense period of piracy in the Caribbean between about 1650 and 1730. But in fact, at that same time, piracy was also in epidemic proportions in the Indian Ocean, off the West African coast, where it was tied up with slavery, and off the North American seaboard as well. So it's in many, many places. So anywhere where trade and exploration of new continents are going on, there are pirates. That's exactly it. The sea, the oceans are, are immense. You know, in this particular age, when colonies and colonial trade is beginning to reach high proportions, there are opportunities for those who would want to cut corners and get rich quick. So you've mentioned when this golden age took place, which is sort of 1600s into 1700s. Why the Caribbean in particular? Well, it was the attraction of the immense opportunities of Spanish colonial trade. The Spanish had dominated the exploration of Central and South America, and they effectively had a monopoly on all trade coming out of their burgeoning colonies. And so that generated immense wealth in minerals and agriculture and, and other products, especially things like silver and sugar, and eventually things like tobacco. And so all that is being brought back across the Atlantic or up into North America. And so there's a lot of ships, a lot of trading ships following these routes. And of course, if you're based in the Caribbean, you're in the perfect place to intercept it. Who were some of the big names at the centre of this golden age of piracy then? Well, there are a few big ones that people will have heard of. So perhaps they've heard of Henry Morgan, maybe Edward Teach, or otherwise known as Blackbeard, Charles Vane, William, Captain Kidd, Calico Jack. And there are a few that they won't have heard of as well. Uh, and they're not all English or, or British, you know. Oliver Lavasseur was a Frenchman in the Caribbean at the time, and Amarago Pago was a, a Spanish pirate. So they're from many, many nations. And we only know a lot, I suppose, about the English ones. And they live on today through popular storytelling, and I think one is also on a bottle of rum. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
So today we might refer to them as professional criminals, career criminals, crime lords and this sort of thing. Would that be right? Yes, possibly. I mean, it's very difficult looking back and, and trying to judge people with the standards of our own age. But many of these men and women came from ordinary backgrounds. Many of them had been ordinary sailors. And, you know, it was pretty hard to make a living as an ordinary person in this era. You know, you were stuck in a hierarchy, which it was very difficult to extricate yourself from. And so often when given the opportunity, these people who were living in a very violent age anyway, seized the opportunity to make a good living for themselves in a sense. So it's difficult to judge them very harshly. It was a very violent age anyway. You could be hung for minor theft. And so violence was an epidemic. And so, yes, they were criminals, but I think we have to look back with a certain amount of nuance from our own age. Absolutely. And I think, as we've described in the introduction, there were more heroic names like privateers and buccaneers, which then verge into sort of st state-sponsored piracy. So That's I guess correct, yeah. that, that, that needs to be borne in mind as well. But for the sort of criminal element of pirates, uh, what sort of criminal network would they have been connected to? I presume they're working for some kind of boss. Sometimes, but not necessarily. Sometimes they were working for themselves, but often they had backers, yes, I mean, in order to finance the enterprise. And this is where it gets a bit murky, because often these backers were officials. Some of them would have been governors and deputy governors and officers in the colonies where they were plying their trade. So often there was a great amount of corruption and collusion going on between those who were the active pirates and those who were semi-officially sometimes, but more often than not behind the scenes, encouraging and financing their activities and also helping to dispose of the products of their activities too. If you didn't die at the hand of a pirate, would you perhaps end up working for one? Yes, absolutely. That's absolutely the case that often people who were taken by pirates aboard merchant ships did have something of a Hobson's choice. If they weren't wealthy enough to be ransomed, then often they were just slung overboard. And so in those circumstances, quite a lot of people elected to join the crews. And also, I mean, especially in the Caribbean, there were a lot of escaped slaves from the various colonies whose only option really was to join. So a significant proportion of quite a few of these pirate crews were made up of ex escaped black slaves. Something like 20 to 30% uh, is estimated. So I guess that's so it's very much a, a mixed picture. And the ways into and out of piracy are many and varied. Yes, I was going to say, it, that's how we get this sort of more nuanced view. It's, it's not cut and dried, is it? No, not at all. So who are they selling their stolen goods to? Well, the answer is anybody. But sometimes, because the networks are organised and have official or semi-official collusion, then they have pre-established outlets. So a lot of the trade in the Caribbean, when it was taken by pirates, was actually sold in North America, and especially in British North America, to the expanding colonies there. But some of it found its way back to Europe as well through these, these organised networks. They weren't turning up at a port trying to sell it. It was all pre-organised. And you've mentioned some of the products already, like tobacco, silver, that kind of thing. Yeah. Were there any other products that were particularly yeah, popular? Yeah, sugar, sugar was a big one. Obviously, there, there are, at that time, emerging sugar plantations, uh, which become enormous during the, the late 17th and 18th centuries. There are, you know, random things like cochineal, which is a dye, cacao, vanilla, the products of farming. I mean, they were establishing ranches out there in the colonies. And so, 
you know, leather and tallow and wool and all this kind of thing were being produced. So it's a, a whole host of products. You've described some of the major characters of this golden age, but is there one who's particularly notorious? Mm, it's a difficult question, that. It's a question of what people have heard of, and, and I think most people will have heard of Blackbeard. I think he's probably the most famous, and arguably because he was quite a clever individual who cultivated his own fearsome image. And he relied on that to a great extent to strike fear into his enemies. And often his encounters weren't so dangerous and bloody as they could have been because of his reputation. Uh, he was a Bristol man, in fact. Right. Uh, and he, he carried out his activities mainly in, in the Caribbean. He took many, many ships and managed to evade the Royal Navy and, and the navies of foreign governments that were sent against him. But eventually the British government became very alarmed at the general rise of piracy in the area in the early 18th century and decided to suppress it. And eventually they caught up with Blackbeard just off the coast of North Carolina in 1718. And there was a very significant naval battle and he was caught and, and killed in action during that encounter. Wow. But then there's another chap, there's another chap who is quite impressive called Henry Avery. And he also plied the Atlantic and the Caribbean, but also the Indian Ocean in a ship called the Fancy. And he gained eternal notoriety when he took 25 vessels of a Mughal emperor that were on their way to Mecca. And the hull of one of these boats was a treasure ship. It's estimated at something like 90 million pounds in today's money. It was such an embarrassment to the British government because it wanted to stay on good relations with this emperor that they launched a huge manhunt. And although members of his crew were captured because they were chased all over the globe, he was never caught and we don't actually know what happened to him. So it, it's distinctly possible that he got away with it. Yeah. Which is an interesting thought. And of course, his story lives on because everyone wonders what happened to him. But some of the pirates who were caught, were they brought to justice? Yes, most of them, in fact, were, even though those who were in some way protected or in collusion with the authorities. Eventually, they became an embarrassment in one way or another, and most of them were caught and usually hung, executed. Although sometimes, in a few cases, pardons were given. Did women engage in piracy, and did they also you know, find themselves under the gallows? Yes, they did, and I suspect it's more common than we actually know. The two most famous ones are Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. Anne was an Irish girl and Mary was an English girl. And they were in the Caribbean at the end of the 17th century and the early part of the 18th century. And both of them were actually caught after about five years of you know, a very spectacular career. And they were sentenced to death. But it was revealed at the trial that they were both actually pregnant and so they couldn't be they couldn't be executed. So both were placed in jail. Mary Reed actually died in prison, but Anne Bonny didn't and eventually was uh, released from jail on the petition of her father. And she died after many, many years of respectability uh, in a place called Charlestown in Carolina. She lived a very long life, so she died in 1782. If we cross back four and a half thousand miles from the Caribbean, left to right on the map, to the English Channel, and we go back further, through time, we actually find that the waters between England and France were also awash with pirates over the centuries. So who were the first known pirates operating in English waters, colder waters? <laughs> well, the Channel has always been a major trade route. 
from the Mediterranean, from Spain, France, into the Low Countries, England and Scotland, into Northern Europe and the Baltic and backwards and forwards. And that's been the case, you know, since Roman times. And so there have always been masses of trading vessels coming through this narrow stretch of water. And we know that in Roman times, they were pirates who were attracted to this uh, and also to raiding the coasts of, of what is now Belgium, Northern France and Britain in search of plunder. So, you know, we have pirates coming from the Rhineland in the late Roman period and an officer called Carosius was appointed to, to try and deal with them. And then obviously there are Saxon pirates and raiders that are coming into Britain in the early medieval period. And of course, Vikings, they're not just raiders of coastal settlements, they're also pirates. So this is going on continuously from Roman times right through the early medieval period. That's fascinating. As we head into the Middle Ages then, did piracy grow around the English Channel? I don't know whether it grew, but it continued. You know, it, it's, I think it's there all the time. You know, it was such a temptation, great opportunities for easy profit in this narrow stretch of waterway. To, to put it into perspective, there was no such thing as what we know as international law and the law of the sea. The sea was effectively a vast space where no laws really operated, where there were no navies belonging to any country large enough to police it. And so the idea of the sea as an opportunity was commonplace among all nations. The taking of foreign ships and cargoes wasn't really regarded in the same way that we regard it today. Nationalism, regionalism and localism fostered an adventurous spirit all over the coastal areas of Europe. And piracy, in many ways, was seen as a legitimate part of local economies. And that had to be put up with by governments because they simply weren't strong enough to stop it. And of course, at other times, it became useful to them. I suppose that answers my next question, which was, why was the English Channel so lawless? And you sort of yeah. explained that. But why were merchant ships so vulnerable as well? Could they not have defended themselves? Well, some could. And in fact, it's a truism to say that many merchants were also pirates. They knew they were going to be preyed on, and so they took steps to defend themselves. Mm. But obviously not everybody could afford to defend themselves. And, you know, pirates are taking things like fishing boats as well. It's not just extremely valuable cargoes they're taking. They're taking anything. The other factor is, of course, that merchant ships in these days, because navigation was, you know, relatively primitive, they tended to want to stay in sight of land because it would be easier to seek shelter in the event of bad weather and storms. So this made them highly visible from the land and mm. therefore vulnerable because pirates could just sally forth from a certain port at the sight of a, a merchant convoy or a merchant ship on its own and take them. They were also often heavily laden and slow so they could easily be caught by the smaller, faster vessels that pirates were using. It sounds utterly ruthless, uh, almost like um, a lion watching its prey and then jumping out and going yes. for the jugular. It is totally ruthless, really, if you think hard about it. <laughs> but it, it's ruthless by our standards. I think the point I'm trying to make is that perhaps it wasn't so ruthless by their own standards. It, it was just life. Mm. Law of the jungle, albeit on the high seas. How was the relationship between England and France during this period? And did that make piracy worse across the Channel? The relationship between England and France was pretty disastrous throughout the medieval period and actually up until the 19th century, actually. We were often at war. You know, England had a claim on territory in France, a long-standing claim. 
And that particularly manifests itself during this thing called the Hundred Years' War between the 1330s and the 1450s, when England and France are more or less at war for all of that period, albeit on and off. But of course, they're, they're at war before that as well. The First Barons' War, 1215 to 1217, between John and the King of France, is another good example of uh, you know a period when we are at war and where piracy is is part of the scene. And so it definitely makes it worse because piracy was a way of helping to fight war. And as we described in our episode on the First Barons' War, we effectively had a French king crowned on English soil, am I right in saying? That's correct, yes. Yeah. And of course, it, it then flipped over the other way. Could you tell us how the leaders on either side of the channel use pirates to their advantage then? We touched on a bit of state-sponsored piracy at the start, but how yeah. did it work specifically to the English Channel? Well, if you think about two nations separated by a big moat, as we call it, a big stretch of sea, and they're wanting to get soldiers back and forward, they need a lot of ships. Unfortunately, at this time, nations didn't keep large navies because they they couldn't afford it. It was a huge undertaking to finance a permanent navy with permanent crews. And so, in times of war, they turned to all the merchant ports along their respective coasts and effectively hired the ships of merchants. And in fact, warships of this time are mainly just merchant ships with lots of soldiers on them. And so they rely on these ports, many of which, of course, are occupied by merchant pirates for transport to and from the theatres of war. And so this makes it very difficult in times of peace for them to persecute the very people the very pirates who have been helping them. These pirates were also commissioned by respective countries to fight the war for them because, after all, if you capture the trade and the merchant vessels of an enemy nation, you sink them, you're reducing the ability of your enemies to wage war. And actually, pirates become even more useful than that because they're not used just to capture enemy ships at sea but they are commissioned to raid the coasts. And so on both sides of the channel, you know, the French and the English are actually sending pirate forces to raid coastal towns, to destroy the bases and to destroy trade. So it's a means of economic warfare, which they they wage. And it's a significant thing during the Hundred Years' War. Wow, that's fascinating. So pirates attacking pirates. Yes, in fact. And, And they're useful people and they're often become highly regarded and very powerful individuals. What happened during peacetime then, if there was peacetime? Well, that's a tricky one because, as you can imagine, suddenly peace arrives and pirates, merchants, go back to their their normal trade. It tended to be tolerated by governments, unless, of course, it caused some major diplomatic incident when some significant cargo or some very important person's cargo was taken. And in which case... That's the occasion when pirates tended to be punished, although punishment tended to be, you know, a little spell in prison, they would make reparations and then they'd be let go again to carry on their careers. So there weren't many pirates who were sought out and and executed during this period. Okay, well, let's look at some of the characters from medieval piracy. I gather we start with a man who sounds quite monastic and pious, but his life changes eventually. What can you tell us about Eustace the monk? Great name, isn't it? Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't sound like a pirate at all. Well, no. 
He's a Frenchman, actually. He's from the area around Boulogne, and he's quite of noble birth. Uh, he enters a Benedictine monastery, which is where he gets his name, the monk from, near Calais. And through that, in the early 1200s, he becomes an important administrative official with the Count of Boulogne, who at that time was a very powerful ruler indeed. So Eustace's position is very significant, and he serves this, this person until there's some kind of quarrel which you know, we don't know too many details of, but the result of it is that Eustace becomes a fugitive and eventually he becomes a pirate. He's an outlaw. Yes, he becomes a sort of a double agent in a way, is that right? Kind of, eventually, yes. I mean, he creates a pirate base in the Channel Islands from where, where he tax shipping in the Channel, both for his own profit, but sometimes on behalf of the English government. I mean, King John employed him, for instance, with substantial fleets of ships to wage war on his French enemies. But he does switch sides eventually in 1212 when his former employer becomes John's ally. And so he rejoins the French side and is actually in charge of quite substantial fleets that are fighting at the time in this thing called the First Baron's War. Eventually, he brings a, a fleet in 1217 to reinforce a French army that's running amok in England. But he's met by an English fleet off the coast of Kent at Sandwich, and he was captured. And he was so hated by this time, the English, basically, because of his previous career of piracy against them, beheaded him aboard ship. Wow. A kind of immediate rough justice. That's a brutal end. It's a brutal end indeed, yeah. In the 1300s, there's a pirate with an apt surname who develops a relationship with the king and then gets his claws around a title. What do we know about <laughs> John Crabbe? What a great name, eh? <laughs> I mean, I'd be amazed if it's his real name, but that's kind of how he's, he's come down to us in history. He was actually born in Flanders, and he was active as a pirate in the early 14th century, based in Scotland. And he was preying on English shipping during what we call the first Scottish War of Independence. This is the era of William Wallace and Robert the Bruce fighting against the English. Uh, and he, he actually settled in Aberdeen, but eventually comes south to Berwick, which is this great border town which at that time was owned by the Scots. And he, he served them as a, as a military officer. He was constable of the town of Berwick, which means that, you know, that's a pretty important position in charge of soldiers and the defence of the town. But eventually, for various reasons, he's captured by the English and becomes valuable to the English who want to take Berwick because he knows the defences. And so he joins the English side. And from that time on, he becomes a fairly respected English official. He's given the constableship of a castle in Lincolnshire at a place called Somerton, and thereafter continued to help the English in their wars against Scotland and also against the French. Uh, he took part in some, some pretty significant battles, uh, including the great battle at a place called Sluys in 1340, which was a major victory of the, the English uh, over the French. So, you know, from being a, an English-hating, Scots-based pirate he becomes a respected and high-ranking English official. Henry Pay in the 1400s seems to be working for the Crown as well. Where did he operate and how successful was he? He operated out of Poole, you know, that lovely place on the south coast in Dorset. Uh, and he plied his trade in the early 15th century off the south coast of England and the southwest coast as well, mainly against the Spanish, actually. The Spanish had a very vigorous trade coming north to England and also to France and, and the Low Countries. And so he was primarily after Spanish ships 
And he, he worked with other pirates from other South Coast ports, and it was very successful. I'm seeing a bit of a pattern as well developing with these pirates. Really, they are just up for anything, aren't they? They'll work for the king, they'll work for themselves, or they'll switch sides. They don't seem to have any morals at all. <laughs> yeah, well, we have the benefit of comfortable lives. I don't think these people actually did. And so, yeah, they would go where the pay was, as it were. And this chap, you know, does fight for the English government of Henry IV against the French in the Channel and also against an attempt of the French to aid the Welsh when Glendower started his revolt in, in Wales. Hmm. This man was hugely successful and he too ended his life as an important royal officer in Calais and had a royal pension, in fact, and he died and is buried in Faversham in Kent. Hmm. I mean, we've even got a fun day, which is held every June in Poole, called the Harry Pay Day. His fame has continued down to the present day. He definitely got a lot of paydays, I'm sure. B yeah. Before Henry or Harry Pay, there's this character called John Hawley of Dartmouth in Devon, also a Southwest man. He worked for the King as a privateer as well, but... What did his, his job involve and how did he become rich? John Hawley, I think, is the most impressive of all the, the medieval pirates. He was a man of huge stature in his time as well as afterwards. And he was based in Dartmouth. And Dartmouth at this time was a very successful trading town. And he was the most successful of its adventurous merchants who plied their trade down the Atlantic in the Channel and up into the Baltic. He was very successful. He was mayor of Dartmouth no less than 14 times and was actually MP as well and responsible for collecting the king's customs dues. So, you know, he was ostensibly a very respectable individual. But throughout his life, England and France were at war and so he was employed round about from the 1370s until his death in 1408 by the kings of England to wage war, as we've just been describing, mainly against the French and, of course, making himself wealthy in the process. So he, for me, typifies the medieval pirate. He's not just a pirate. He's a man of many faces, and he's successful in all of them. That sounds like a great title for his uh, biography, isn't it? A man of many faces. Yeah. When Queen Elizabeth I is on the throne, the term sea dog starts to appear in the history of pirates. What was a sea dog? Well, in the late Elizabethan period, from the 1580s through to her death in the early, uh, the early 17th century, we were at war with Spain. You recall the Great Armada of 1588 and all the stories associated with that. Well, the Elizabethan government was a promoter of piracy, mainly as a means of waging war against the much more powerful Spanish. And that was happening in the Atlantic. Spanish treasure ships particularly were coming back from the Caribbean. And so men like Sir Francis Drake, Sir Martin Frobisher and John Hawkins, who were skilled naval officers who had taken part in things like the Armada, were employed in this capacity. And they were men also of many faces and some of it less acceptable than others. Some of them were involved in the slave trade, for instance. But they were also extremely able navigators and fearless fighters. And so they were employed by the government to try and capture some of these treasure galleons coming back from Central America. So how do they differ from privateers and buccaneers then, being sea dogs? They don't really differ from privateers at all. I mean, they are, in effect, they are dishonourable because their links to government are obvious but not acknowledged. Mm. 
So they are privateers technically because they have official sanction, but that sanction is not acknowledged. So they could be regarded as pirates. So it's a very difficult distinction to make. But all of them, without exception, vastly exceeded their authorities in the pursuit of personal glory and personal profit. And they did indulge in some pretty questionable activities on the side, the, the worst of which was the slave trade. And I think when you look at a portrait of Sir Francis Drake, you might think that he was a very respectable establishment man. But obviously there's more to him than meets the portrait. I think there's more to all of them. It's very difficult to brand them or to label them as one thing or another. I think they were products of their age. They were adventurers who would go to any lengths to fulfil what they wanted to do. Paul, we've also got another slightly menacing surname in the uh, history of pirates. This is Henry Strangeways, a.k.a. The Rover. But Strangeways is spelt without an E, so it's effectively Strangways when you see it written down. I understand that he's a Dorset native and he had some ties with another band of pirates called the Killigrews, which is also a very dangerous name. (laughs) Yeah. Strangeways was a Dorset man. We, we don't exactly know his origins, but he might have been of minor gentry origins. We encounter him first in Ireland in about 1549, where he's a member of a crew. But eventually in the 1550s, we find him as a captain of a pirate vessel, again working in the channel. And interestingly, he had a brother called George, who was in command of an English castle called Portland Castle, one of Henry VIII's coastal castles. And we know that he was actually storing some of his plundered goods there during the 1550s. He had an interesting career. And because he was preying mainly on Spanish ships at this time, when Mary came to the throne in the 1550s, he becomes an outlaw, even more of an outlaw, as it were. And then he moves to France and operates with the, the agreement of the French king out of Le Havre, again, preying on mainly Spanish vessels in the Channel. He was imprisoned many times, but somehow he always seems to have been released, possibly through bribery, but possibly also because he had friends at court. Uh, And that is borne out on a number of occasions where people of very high standing, some on the Privy Council, one called Edward Lord Clinton, who was Lord High Admiral of England, interceded for him. And on another occasion, uh, Sir Nicholas Throckmorton interceded for him as well. And on these occasions, he was pardoned. I think because he was known to be a very enterprising and capable soldier. And in fact, in 1562, he was employed by the English government as a captain of soldiers sent uh, across to Rouen to try and help French Protestants who were being persecuted and had held up in the city of Rouen. And Strangeways, in fact, dies something of a hero in trying to relieve these French Protestants from attack by the French government and he's killed. So he's a great example of how pirates have these many aspects to them and they have links with government that make them useful on occasions. Mm -hmm. What was his um, connection with this other band called the Killigrews? Well, Strangeways teamed up with some of the Killigrew family. Now, the Killigrews were an ancient Cornish gentry family based upon what is now Falmouth. And they had a succession of pirates in their family through the 16th century. Three of them called John, father, son, and grandson, and two more called Peter and Thomas. And Strangeways teamed up with Peter and Thomas, who were also Protestants that fled during the reign of Mary to France. 
And so Strangeways worked with Peter and Thomas Killigrew out of La Havre, preying on Spanish shipping in the 1550s. But the Killigrews as a whole were notorious at the time, but they too had important connections and generally managed to escape persecution by the government, as it were. All three John Killigrews were captains of one of Henry VIII's castles at a place called Pendennis in Cornwall on, on the Fal estuary. Mm. And so they have this official status as well. And in fact, one of them managed to get himself appointed onto the commission against piracy that was launched in the Elizabethan period with the ostensible purpose to stopping piracy. <laughs> but mm. in fact, most of the people on it were tied up with piracy. And so it was pretty ineffective. And it just shows you how the tentacles of piracy spread into the highest regions of government. It's the case of marking your own homework, isn't it? The story of the strange ways is quite nuanced. Um, you talked about him being uh, imprisoned several times, released, escaped the death penalty at one stage. How is his life characterised, Henry Strangeways? It's a difficult one, isn't it? But for me, it underlines what complex characters they were. And it's very difficult for us to judge them, even with the benefit of hindsight, because the standards of our age and the morality of our age is very, very different. I mean, many of them were talented navigators and soldiers and pretty fearless individuals who just sought opportunity in a constantly changing, violent, uncertain and unforgiving world. So I, 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 you know, I, I don't think we should judge them overly harshly, even if we look back with you know, some trepidation on, on some of the things that they did. Mm. But you know, that, that kind of violence and destruction was commonplace at the time. Uh, some of it official, and if it's official, it was acceptable, but if it was unofficial, it wasn't. So I don't judge them too harshly. That's, that's my conclusion. And in the words of Captain Henry Avery, sometime known as the King of Pirates, we mentioned him earlier on, wrote, I am a man of fortune and must seek my fortune. That sums it up for me. Of course, any discussion about piracy should also mention the Barbary pirates. Can you tell us who they were and where they operated? This is something that people may have heard of because they gained a real infamy in the 16th and 17th centuries in particular. But probably people know not too much about them and the fact that they were active all over Europe. The Barbary pirates were actually from North Africa, places like Algiers and Tunis and another place called Saleh, which is in Morocco. They first operated in the Mediterranean in the 16th century, but eventually, because of contact with European navigators and sailors and pirates, they broke out of the Mediterranean and were able to handle the different kind of ships required to sail in the rough northern waters. So in the early 17th century, they were plundering as far as Iceland, Madeira in the Atlantic, and Nova Scotia and Newfoundland in North America. So they're very active all over the Atlantic, but also the English Channel. We tend to think of piracy as we're on the winning side, if you want to look at it that way. But actually, we were on the receiving end as well, a, a lot. It, this was a complex, continuous battle that was going on at sea between pirates of various nations. And so Barbary pirates are routinely found raiding the coast of England throughout the 17th century because there was no effective way of stopping them. I mean, they had huge, 
huge fleets. Algiers, for instance, had about 100 pirate warships that were operating all over Europe. And no European nation had fleets that size to stop them. And so they were raiding the coasts of France and the Low Countries and England and Scotland and Ireland, even North America. They were a real menace. That sounds like a pirate navy. That's exactly what it was. These North African states of Algiers, Tunis and Saleh were effectively city-states. They were very, very powerful indeed. And their navies were effectively navies based upon piracy. The Barbary pirates, though, did have a connection to slavery, didn't they? Yes, they did. There are a lot of pirates, to take it as a general subject, that had connections with slavery. Mainly because, for want of a better phrase, slavery was seen by many as a, another merchant cargo. That's a terrible thing to say, but that, that's how it was during these times. But in particular, the Barbary pirates were concentrating on slavery. So they were raiding coastal towns along the south coast of England in order to take people back to North Africa as slaves to work in various agriculture and industry, but also as galley slaves rowing the war galleys in the Mediterranean. And they took tens of thousands. It's nowhere near as big as the, the Atlantic slave trade was. But they were taking significant numbers of people from places like Plymouth, Loo, and other ports along the, the south and southwest courts. Hmm. To such an extent that it, it jeopardizes things like the fishing trade. So they were taking anybody and everybody, and not just from ships. They too were landing with substantial forces and taking people from towns and ports. So is this a case of North African black-looking people taking Caucasian, you know, like the reverse of the Atlantic slave trade, effectively? Perhaps that's, a, that's too simple a way of looking at it. I think the way to look at it is that slavery was endemic throughout the ancient and early modern worlds. Mm. Uh, and quite a lot of races were involved with it. A lot of the Arab races of North Africa had been slavers since the 15th century. And then... Of course, the European nations get in on the trade uh, in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries and take it to massive proportions. Mm. Uh, and, and so all, all sorts of races were being taken as slaves by the Barbary pirates. They weren't choosy. Right. So slavery through history then, really, and especially in conjunction with piracy, is quite indiscriminate. It doesn't matter what you look like or where you're from. Yes, that, that, that's quite correct, but it, it was really industrialised by the European nations in the 17th and 18th century. And I suppose but, that's a narrative that tends to sort of um, live on more today. Yes, I think, you know, obviously it's a topical subject right now, and it's one that needs to be as well, so that we can all come to terms with the fact that slavery was a curse of the ancient and early modern worlds. Mm. Uh, and it was common to, to lots and lots of nations. Piracy, of course, was a criminal activity, and yet it has been portrayed as an adventurous and even heroic pursuit in Hollywood films and popular culture. Is there any truth in this portrayal or was the reality somewhat less glamorous? I think I know the answer to this. We've touched on it a lot. Yes, it has been glamorised and, and I suspect largely the product of that history of the pirates and subsequent literature and its portrayal in film in particular so that we end up with you know the Jack Sparrows of Hollywood I think there must have always been an element of romance and adventure about it. After all, if, if you were born a servant in the West Country and ended up as a fairly well-off pirate in charge of a large crew in the Caribbean in the 17th or 18th century, then you probably would have regarded yourself as successful with, with an element of romance about it. 
So yes, I think there is. But there is also the side that it was a, a serious menace and a lot of perfectly innocent people trying to go about their perfectly innocent normal business suffered at their hands. That's a fact, but I can't help having something of an admiration for them because they were breaking out of the confines society had given to them and they made a life for themselves, albeit often a violent one which ended in a violent end. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we look at the English heritage sites that played their part in the defence of England's northern borders through the ages. It's basically based on distractions. <laughs> when the Scots are distracted, the English invade Scotland, and when the uh, English are distracted, the Scots come south of the border into England. So it's sort of a, a game of sort of one-upmanship. Thanks for listening. See you next time.